The word of our Lord from the epistle to the Galatians. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God now and forever Amen Paul uses a term here that is good to be reminded of the meaning. He uses the term flesh. And throughout the Scriptures, flesh can refer to a number of things. Sometimes flesh simply refers to physicality or materiality. You know, what we typically think of when we think of the term flesh. We think, oh, flesh and blood. The human race. But here Paul uses the term flesh in a different way. He's not referring to simply being human. He's not referring to simply being physical beings. He's not referring to being a part of creation or being made up of matter. Instead, he's using flesh in a theological way and even in a moral or ethical way. The flesh here, as Paul is using it, refers to the body's desires or appetites in control of the self. And so he goes over a list of things that he refers to as works of the flesh. And think about these. Think about how these are examples of our desires or appetites controlling who we are and how we live. Adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, 
sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries. You can see that this list is referring to us living without a sense of control over our, of ourselves, but instead allowing whatever our bodies crave, whatever it is our, our material selves desire to control who we are and how we live. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the body's appetites. God created us as physical beings. He created us as part of His material world. In fact, He gave us our desires. He gave us the desire to to know and be loved. He gave us the desire to, to eat, the desire to sleep. The desire to have fun. The flesh, as Paul is using it here, is when those desires are simply running rampant through our lives. Where they are controlling who we are. We hear the flesh whispering in the inner voice that says, you can do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. Paul says that those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to these things, those who are controlled by this sort of life, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, we live by the Spirit of God and therefore ought to walk in the Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Follow the Spirit's leading. And you have freedom from the flesh. The Spirit here, he's not talking about the immaterial world, which is sometimes how Spirit is used. He's not talking about just the soul, not even our souls. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God. The one who is at work in our lives to bring about God's best in us and for us. The one through whom the scriptures say we have been sealed for redemption. The one who brings new life for the believer. The one whose voice we hear whispering when we hear the inner voice that says, that will destroy you unless you allow me to destroy it first. And that's what the Spirit says about the flesh. Let me put it to death because it will put you to death if I don't. For centuries... Theologians have spoken of God the Father as having two hands. His one hand is 
His eternal Son, the one who was incarnate for our sakes, for our redemption. And His other hand is the Holy Spirit, His eternal Spirit, the one who indwells the believer. And hands have always been used as a symbol of work. And not just of work, but of giving. We talk of lending a hand. We talk of calloused hands. And immediately our minds go toward giving and toward work. Let's ever be mindful that God is at work in this world. He is at work in this world whether we see it, whether we recognize it. He is at work in this world always and in all places. Sometimes it's more evident than others. Sometimes it's not very evident at all. Sometimes we get frustrated and with the psalmist we say, How long, O Lord? Really, are you going to sit by and let evil prevail? Let evil men appear blessed? Crush them. But God is always at work in His world. And through His hands, He is at work through His Son to redeem it. And He is at work through His Holy Spirit to bring about the fruit of that redemption. Jesus Himself said that the work of the second hand, the Holy Spirit, is to conform us to the image of the first hand, the eternal Son, Jesus. Jesus said, He, the Holy Spirit, will take of what is mine, which I received from the Father, and He will give it to you. Typically, when we speak of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we refer to highly theological terms like sanctification. We sang a little bit about it in some of the hymns we sang this morning, even in the, uh, the song, From the Inside Out. That's a, that's a song about sanctification, about God's cleansing work through His Holy Spirit in our hearts so that His cleansing work might not just be in our hearts, but might be gotten out into our lives. Hence why we speak of holiness of both heart and life. But typically, when we think of sanctification, the process of making holy, we typically think about cleansing or taking away. We think of what is done to sin. And we rightly ought to, because sanctification is about getting rid of sin. In fact, Paul here says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, and the flesh is Enumerated in these sins, wrath, dissensions, heresies, drunkenness, revelries, adultery, all of those things. And God wants to rid us of those things which will destroy us because sin will always destroy. It will always breed death. And so in the work of His Holy Spirit sanctifying our hearts and our lives, God is putting to death those things which will kill us. But sanctification also has a positive element to it. It has another, another side of the token. Sanctification is a work 
through which God's Spirit is offering to give us something as well. He's interested not just in taking away from us, but in giving to us. He extends the hand of His Holy Spirit and says, I've got good for you. I've got blessing for you. Here Paul refers to that good, that blessing as fruit. Fruit is the natural results of something. Fruit is that which is produced. And the flesh is fruit. Even if it's the best that man has to offer, it leads to death and destruction. But the Spirit's fruit, which is the very best that God has to offer, leads to life and blessing. We do ourselves well to remember that the Spirit's fruit is not just things that God's Spirit gives to us as though they're suddenly ours, but they are His fruit. They are not just the fruit of the spiritual life, which is so often what is brought to our minds when we think of the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit. We think, oh, okay, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. But these are the fruit that belong to God's Holy Spirit. And these are the fruit that He is bringing into our lives as He cleanses us, as He puts to death those things which will destroy us. He is bringing about those things which give life and give blessing and give favor. Some have looked at the fruit of the Spirit because there are nine of them and they seem to be grouped in threes. And that, to go ahead and give you a heads up, is what I'll be doing throughout these next couple of weeks, looking at three at a time. But some have taken those, the, that group of nine fruit and have, have seen it as dealing with three fields of relationship. The first being our relationship with God, the second being our relationship with others, and the third perhaps dealing with our relationship with ourselves. I'm not quite sure that there, there really is a movement from God to others to self here. Rather though, there seems to be an intertangling of our relationship with all God, others, self, which permeates the Spirit's work and the fruit of His work in our lives. It is the fruit of the Spirit is, is, seems as though it's pictured by hands that are clasped together that are woven together that are locked in together and our relationship with God is directly locked in with our relationship with others and vice versa and how we understand ourselves is directly affected by how we understand ourselves in light of God and in light of others and so each of these fruit love all the way down the list through self-control. Deal not just with our relationship with God, not just with our relationship with others, and not just with our relationship with ourselves, but instead all three are locked in together as clasped hands. Paul says that 
God's Spirit is at work in our lives to produce fruit. And it begins with the word love. Love is an often misused term. It's got a broad range of meaning. I love my wife. And I don't know about you, but I love Taco Tuesdays. Right, kids? Yeah. We, we use the word love in a variety of ways. We speak of loving God and loving football. We speak of loving our job. Loving our car. It's provided by our job. We, we use it on a variety of different levels of priority. The, the, the greatest, our relationship with God and our relationship with others, most especially our spouses, our families, our parents. We use it to speak of our relationship with organizations. I love the membership that I have at this club. We speak of love of country. We speak of loving our neighborhood, loving the, tr- the old trees in our neighborhood. We speak of love in a variety of ways. But Paul here says that love is the beginning point of God's fruit in our lives through His Holy Spirit. The scriptures tell us that we know love because the archetype of love has manifested himself to us. We are enabled to love by virtue of being made in his image. That image has been marred by sin. But the, scripture, but the scriptures tell us that herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He first loved us and gave Himself for us. He gave Himself to us. Love itself. Love reminds us of giving hands. God wants to bestow upon us. He doesn't just want to take our stuff. He doesn't just want to take our things. He doesn't just want to take the bad out of our lives. He wants to pour out upon us His goodness. He wants to love us. And love always gives. Love gives of time. Love gives of energy. Love gives in all things. Because love is not concerned with self. It is concerned with the beloved. The object of love. God's Spirit is at work in our lives. 
to bring God's love, to bring His love in a consuming and transforming way. You know, lust, which Paul uses here in this context, the lust of the flesh. Lust seeks to grasp. It's always taking. But love seeks to give. It is always giving. It is always deferring. And so God wants to put in our lives... His love so that we might love Him in response and so that we might love others rightly even when they don't deserve it. Even even when they take that love for granted. God wants to get His love down deep into our hearts and our souls so that it might work its way out into our lives. Paul mentions the second word, joy. The Spirit of God is at work in our lives to produce joy. Joy has a funny way about it. It points us beyond this world. C.S. Lewis described it as like signposts directing our eyes and our attention toward heaven. We long for something more than mere happiness or even contentment. We know that stuff can bring happiness and we know that stability can bring contentment. But what we want is joy. Something that transcends us and transcends our circumstances. We want joy. Not just to have a smile on our face. Not just to have less worry. Or less anxiety. We want joy. Joy is often, though not always, accompanied by laughter. You know, laughter is, is a very odd thing. It, it has an, it's, it's like an ecstatic expression. It gets us out and above ourselves. The scriptures even tell us that it's good for us, good for our souls. It's like a medicine. Laughter reminds us of joy because laughter does get our center out of ourselves. Joy is like pointing hands. Telling us there's something more. And it's that direction. There's something more than this life. There's something for which we've been created. And we've simply caught glimpses of it. In our moments of greatest joy. God's Spirit is at work in our lives to produce joy so that we might know the joy of God and so that we might be joyful people. 
Joy doesn't mean we're always wearing smiles on our faces. But joy does bring some sense of enjoyment into life. And too many people who profess themselves as Christians have a very poor representation of the joy of God. Some seem to not have quite enough joy and some seem to bring joy down a few notches and pretend that it's simply smiling, simply laughing and being giddy. But God wants to bring true and lasting joy. You know what brings you joy in life. And if you can't think of what brings you joy in life, you might want to consider like a little 15-minute exercise with a piece of paper and a pen this afternoon where you jot down those things that really put you in a wonderful place. Those things that enrich your soul. For some of us, it's spending time with friends. Most of us like spending time with our friends, those of us who have friends. And, but not everyone likes to be around the party. Not everyone likes to be around all of the noise. Some of us, joy is found in an afternoon alone with a book. Embrace that. For some of us, it's being able to get outside for a little bit. Whether it's working or playing or going for a walk. Some of us hate going for a walk, but we do it because it helps and we need it. But target where those moments of joy are in your life and pray for God's blessing upon them. After all, the scripture says that everything we do, whether we eat or drink, it all ought to be done in Christ. In love, God's hands are giving. In joy, God's hands are pointing. But Paul says that God offers to us through His Holy Spirit the fruit of peace. And in peace, God's hands are embracing. Peace is not necessarily the absence of conflict. We know that quite well. As David was mentioning, we know quite frequently what conflict is. We know when troubles abound. And for most of us, they abound quite often. Life is filled with troubles. 
Some of those troubles seem somewhat in, insignificant. You know, disappointments, small disappointments in life, small letdowns, plans that didn't quite go as planned. Dinner getting burnt. But some of those troubles are enormous. They seem so enormous that we feel as though we're consumed by those troubles. Fifteen years ago, our nation was in the midst of one of those troubles where we were indeed consumed with tragedy. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing about it. You couldn't turn to any channel without seeing about it. I remember where I was. I was in class, I believe an Old Testament class at Wesley College, and somebody snuck in the back of the class and said, a plane just flew into one of the Twin Towers. We didn't know what was happening. We had no earthly idea if this was terrorism. If it, it's, Our first thought was this is a freak accident. But I remember we dismissed quite quickly. We prayed and dismissed. And a few of my classmates and I, close friends, Marshall, Chris, Robert, some of you know all three of them. We ran back to the dorm, turned on the news, and we're watching the first one when the second one is hit. And immediately, all of America, all of our culture was awakened to the reality that we are surrounded by conflict. We are surrounded by tragedy. We are surrounded by unexpected things happening, many of them terrible things. But peace is what grounds us within, even if conflict abounds without. Peace is not the ability to tamp out all of the fires. It is about having a strong and steady assurance in the midst of the fires. It was peace that the martyrs had as they sang hymns, even as the flames were rising around them. It is peace that a soldier can have, even in the midst of trench warfare, knowing simply that God is with him and he's got his brother beside him. But God's peace is greater than what we find in the world's power structures. In fact, Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace, but my peace I give to you. And he said that in the context of the passage that David read earlier from John. As Jesus is spending those, night, those last hours with his disciples. And he's talking to them about the ministry of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. See, God's peace does not escape troubles. This is not about an escapist mentality where we can just forget about the troubles of life. We often speak of that. 
unfortunately, I've been guilty of this myself, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. We say, let's just forget about the troubles that we have, and let's come on in and focus on God, as though God's got nothing to say about the troubles. As though God's peace isn't big enough to deal with the troubles. God's peace does not escape trouble, but instead rushes into trouble to spread itself. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Peace does not stay back away from life and its troubles. It doesn't stay back away from conflict. It gets right into the thick of it. Because God's peace are those hands that embrace us, that hold us, that squeeze us and hold us tight when life is chaotic and out of control. God wants to give us His peace. Not just so that we will have peace, but for that as well. But He wants to give us His peace so that in the core of our beings, we might be different people. Different than what we once were and different than what the world typically knows. So that we might be people who begin working for peace. So that we might begin being people who spread joy as we live joyous lives in God. And so that we might be people who love others more than ourselves and love others with the very love of Christ. His love, His joy, and His peace are offered to us. They are given to us. They are pointed out to us. They embrace us as we yield ourselves to His Spirit's work. Our prayer this week ought to be O Holy Spirit, would you fill my heart with love, with joy, and with peace? Would you transform me? Would you consume me with your love, with your joy, with your peace? Would you put to death in me what would kill me? And would you fill me with your life? I need it. And I want it. That ought to be our prayer. 
I want to encourage you. Spend some time every day this week, even if it's just five minutes. Now, if you're if you're already faithfully reading the scriptures daily and praying daily, don't take away from that. Add to it. Add some time to your life this week, every day, to think about love, joy, and peace, and how God wants to bring into your life His love, His joy, and His peace, and how through your life God wants to share His love, joy, and peace with others. I can't promise you much, but I'll promise you this. Your week will be better than if you hadn't. And your week will begin sending you on a trajectory toward a life that is consumed by the fruit of God's Spirit. When you're pursuing love, joy, and peace, it's really hard. It's really hard to be wrapped up in sorcery and idolatry, hatred, contentions, wrath. The Holy Spirit wants to put to death what will kill you. And He wants to fill you with His life. His hands are ready to work. God the Father says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by a name. Child, you are mine. And His Spirit is saying, Here are the blessings of being a child of the Father. Walk in them. Have His love. Have His joy. Have His peace. He is able to give to us what we can't gain for ourselves. He is able to point our eyes toward heaven. Even in this life. And He is able to embrace us even as we hurt, even as we doubt, even as we, we feel as though nothing is going right, even as we feel our greatest of hurts, He is the one who with His hands holds us and embraces us. Let's pray.